Hey friends, welcome to Conversations with Kenzie, a podcast hosted by yours truly, Kenzie Brenna. No topic goes unturned here. We talk about everything with everyone. We like to get raw and sometimes we get heavy and sometimes we swear. So I'm warning you now. Also, we are working remotely. So audio quality between host and guest may differ. Lastly, check out our show notes for giveaways, fun promotions, or discounts to our favorite stuff. Enjoy the show. Okay. Hi, Michael. Hi. How you doing tonight? I'm great. How are you, Kenzie? I'm good. I'm good. Today has been a very, very, very busy day, but I'm so excited to chat with you about climate change and all of the things. Everyone's favorite topic. It's so fun. (laughs) It is. It's definitely, I love that. It's funny because it's not anyone's favorite topic ever, (laughs) but it's one of the most, it's a topic that I can't seem to get enough information on. And at the same time, it's some, we're going to dive into this more in the actual episode, but sometimes I feel like the information slips through my fingers. Like I, I know it and then I forget it. I know it. And then I buy something with like, you know, 12,000 pieces of microplastic attached to it, you know? And so I, I, it's one of those, it's, it's, it's confusing and there's so much to it as well. And so I'm really excited to untangle a lot of it with you today and chat about it. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone right now? Sure. Um, Hi, my name is Michael, also known as Big Mike when I'm in drag. I'm a science communicator slash artist slash millennial trying to get by. Um, (laughs) And I'm super passionate about talking to people about climate change, which is, you know, not everyone's favorite topic because it's extremely dark. But I also think that there, you know, there is, there is beauty and light in the climate in general. And that I wish people, you know, understood a little more Mm -hmm. about this really awesome planet that sustains all the life that we have. Mm. Oh, that ending there. Absolutely. That's really the key to all of this. Um, how did you come to know so much about the climate and our earth and all of those in-betweens? I think for me, a lot of it started with my early childhood education, which was super naturey and hands-on. I went to like a really strange school called a Waldorf school, which if you know, you know, if you don't, it's weird. And um that kind of gave me an appreciation for nature and the natural world. So when I was like trying to figure out what to do with my life in high school, which, you know, in my opinion is way too early to try to figure out what to do with your life. I was trying to pick something that would really make a difference and kind of jived with what I was interested in. And at the time I was really interested in science. I thought it was super interesting and fascinating. And once I figured out that I could do it and wasn't limited by the gender I was assigned at birth, Then I started kind of picturing this future for myself where I could be an environmental scientist. So I pursued that and I got this environmental biology degree at university and um, quickly discovered I wasn't like a huge fan of research. Mad respect for all the researchers out there. (laughs) They're doing the good work, (laughs) but it's not a path I want to go down. So I found out about this program called Environmental Visual Communication. And pursued that instead because throughout my entire life, I've always been an artist and, you know, never really believed that that was a viable career path, but (laughs) always felt like I needed to be using my various artistic abilities in some way that aligned with my career. Mm -hmm. So this was a really cool program because I kind of learned how to communicate science and science communication, after all of my years of schooling in environmental biology, seemed super necessary because a lot of the problems we kept running into is how do we actually teach the general public about science in a way that's not so dry that they're just banging their heads against their textbooks? Mm. 
And it was around that time when I kind of discovered drag. And luckily, I found out there was space for me, even though I'm not male and I'm not assigned male at birth. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity to meld the two at the Sciences of Drag performance, which um, is a really cool event that Science Sam hosts. And um, that's when I... I kind of discovered that I could blend the two together Mm. and that drag itself is inherently political. I mean, the Stonewall riot was incited partially by drag performers. And historically, I think that effect has carried on to modern day where we see that drag does have a pretty strong political voice. Mm. And it's really one of the few ways to make something as depressing as climate change fun. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. You did something that is so incredibly unique and important and special to note is that you had a natural proclivity towards the arts, towards being an artist and expressing yourself in various creative modes. And you had all of this knowledge that you wanted to actually combine the two of them and not too many people find that space and find that niche for them. And for different reasons, you know, systemic barriers, personal barriers, there's so many ways that people won't find their elements, but you were able to. And I think that's why your art is so amazing. For those of you who don't know, the way that I found out about Michael was going to the Science is a Drag Show, which is a drag show full of science communicators, and they do a drag performance. And afterwards, all of the performers discuss their, what would you call it? Their specialty? Their their specialties, like their chefs. like <laughs> Yeah, like we gave a little presentation that was very science communication focused, so it was it was much more digestible Mm -hmm. than I'm sure a lot of the performers were used to because I I was pretty unique amongst the performers in that I was more of a science communicator and artist first and a scientist second. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were scientists first and performers, um, artists second. Right. And seeing your performance, you did this really, really, really incredible performance and then afterwards talked about or you talked about climate change before and then did the performance afterwards and I remember just getting it so easily when you spoke about climate change you know and I had never I'd never not understood climate change but you put it so eloquently and it you simplified it without taking away some of the hard facts and the hard information, which I think is really tough for science communicators, which is, I mean, that's the whole point of needing science communicators is that science is so bogged down with scientific jargon and with a lot of, lot of, lot of dense research that is really hard to put into terms that everybody can know and make it accessible, you know? And I think that you did that that night. You did such a great job of it. And my partner and I have just been loving, like loving your drag ever since. And I'm really happy to have you on the show today because I think climate change is something that I don't talk about enough and that's on me and I need to talk about it more. It's something that I talk about a lot in my personal life with people but it's not something that I talk about enough on my platform. And I think it's because, like I said before, the information is a lot for me. And I, it's like, I understand it, but I don't know how to communicate it. So I kind of want to start off today with kind of like the bones of it. And I want you to explain to us what exactly is climate change. And maybe we can even go so far as to defining what climate is. Mm, that's a good question. Like defining climate. The cli- climate is not weather, which is, I think, where a lot of people get hung up is weather is a much smaller thing than climate. Climate is, in the broader sense, what are the patterns of weather? Weather is the small, you know, day to day things we experience like rain and sun, but it's not the overall average temperature of the planet, for example, which is climate or the amount of precipitation over a large period of time and a large bit of land. So essentially, climate, big, weather, small part, climate. Perfect. (laughs) Yes. And climate change itself 
is natural. This is something that we've seen through documented and modeled climate history that over time, there are periods of warming and those are followed by periods of cooling or ice ages. But what's really remarkable and why climate change is such a huge topic of conversation these days is that the rate of change is just much more accelerated than we've ever seen in modeled or recorded history. And I think to really understand why it's happening, which I personally think understanding why it's happening is really important when it comes to caring about it. Mm. We really have to understand what makes Earth inhabitable in the first place. So that is something called the greenhouse effect, which maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't, but it's something very similar to the way that greenhouses themselves work to keep plants warm all year round. Hmm. Basically, if the planet was just plain old earth and water, sun rays would just bounce right off of it and we wouldn't be able to survive on the planet because it would just be too cold. But luckily, there's this atmospheric layer around the planet that works very similarly to the glass in the greenhouse that traps some of those rays as they bounce off the planet. And it keeps them tucked around it and it keeps us a little bit warmer. So it kind of acts like a blanket. You know, if you put on a blanket, the blanket itself isn't warm. You're warm. Mm. But the blanket stops a lot of the heat from escaping from you. And therefore, you warm up. And that's exactly what keeps our planet habitable. Hmm. That is so perfectly said. Continue. Thank you. Um, so yeah, in this atmospheric blanket is composed of gases. There's multiple gases at play here, but the primary ones that we really focus on, the major players here are water vapor, methane, and carbon dioxide. And the sources for these are multifold. There's lots of sources, but they're all natural. Water vapor we get when liquid water gets too hot and it evaporates. Usually it forms clouds and then it rains. It's all natural and part of the system. Mm -hmm. Methane is produced during decomposition and digestive processes that happen all over the planet as well. And carbon dioxide is released every time a living thing breathes. Every time we mm -hmm. breathe out or every time anything that lives breathes out, it releases carbon dioxide. And in addition, this carbon dioxide is also released during a process called combustion, which is just a fancy word for burning. Basically, anytime anything burns, it's a combustion reaction. Mm. So that's how they got there. And that's the reason they're there. I think what's important to note is that the various human activities that have become pretty common now are increasing these major player gases in the atmosphere, as well as the minor players, but even disregarding them. So the way that we do agricultural practices, the way we farm animals increases the amount of methane in the atmosphere. And around, you know, the 1700s, mid 1800s, this big thing happened called the Industrial Revolution. And we discovered that when we harnessed the power of combustion reactions, we were able to power trains and automobiles and create electricity and that really expanded the realm of possibility for humans. And we were able to, you know, have industry and technology, which was great. But every time we did those combustion reactions, we released more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which, of course, went up into this Earth's blanket and made it thicker. So as this blanket, as this atmospheric blanket increased in thickness, just like putting on more blankets or getting an even thicker blanket, you get hotter. And it becomes just hotter and hotter. Something important to note about that is the problem here is that the hotter the planet gets, the more hot it gets. I'm going to break this down. So the hotter it gets, the more water would evaporate. Because that's what happens. You know, we get a hot day, we get more water evaporating out of the liquid state into the gas state mm -hmm. and up into the atmosphere. And like I mentioned before, Water is a greenhouse gas in its gaseous state. So the hotter it gets, the more water in the atmosphere, and therefore the thicker this atmospheric blanket, quote unquote, gets. So the hotter the planet gets. So the more evaporation gets. I'll stop there because it's just going to keep going in a circle. Mm -hmm. And that's why we call it the runaway or enhanced greenhouse effect, because on its own, 
is actually what sustains life. But as soon as you start just pumping it up and adding a little more of that greenhouse gas, it becomes cyclical Mm -hmm. and just keeps on getting hotter. So this is something that I think is like, you know, not said often enough. It's not that carbon dioxide and methane shouldn't exist at all. And it's not that we need to eliminate them completely. It's that they add to our atmosphere and they're part of our natural system. And they've been here for a while, much longer than we have. And it's when there is too much of it. Exactly. Yeah. If everything was kind of in its natural state, the amount of carbon dioxide we would breathe out would be pretty equal to the amount of carbon dioxide that plants take up. Mm. When plants grow, they harness the sun's energy and they use a little bit of carbon dioxide to actually produce their own biomass to like grow. And those two processes naturally in nature are, are pretty balanced out and pretty even. And even with a little bit of, you know, combustion here or there, like when we were cavemen, whatnot, burning fire, doesn't make a huge difference. There is a, a little bit of a buffer there in the planet. But once we start really accelerating that, you got it. That's when things start going awry. It's not that there's an inherent problem with the gas. Mm. So to me, my head is just like, you know, spinning and running and I can't stop getting like smokestacks out of my head and I can't stop imagining a car starting up right now. And I can't stop imagining the oil that we're extracting. And sometimes when I think about those things and I hear what you're saying right now, and we haven't really even got to like the meat and potatoes of it, but I, sometimes I get so overwhelmed. Like I'm, I'm like, Oh, this problem is too big for me. You know, I, I, I can't even conceptualize all of the places in the world where they're extracting oil. I can't conceptualize all of the places where we are chopping down the trees and, you know, putting in things that aren't going to be able to, have natural life grow and I can't I can't stop my head from like spinning out on those and I think that this is the part in the conversation that I want people to also listen to and hear and understand is that we have to sit with those uncomfortable feelings and continue to absorb the information and continue to move forward and talk about the fact that it is a lot to understand and it is very overwhelming. And with anything systemic, it is very overwhelming. It feels like, but I'm one person, I'm one cog in this big machine. How am I supposed to take responsibility for the machine? But if we all did it, the machine would run differently. Like anything systemic. If we all just got on board, the whole system would change. So anyways, I digress, but I just, I'm like, my brain is like running away almost. And so I wanted to point that out. I'm curious now, how do we actually know that, because you said climate change is natural, so we shouldn't even be scared of, you know, that word in general, because that word has, or sorry, that phrase has been used to describe different time periods of natural climate change. But what makes this climate change different? I mean, you mentioned that already, but how do we actually know that climate change this time around is due to humans and human activity and how it's accelerated? Like, how do we know that for sure? Well, the short answer is we have the data. (laughs) The long answer is explaining the data. Right. I mean, yeah, (laughs) the average land temperature at around 2010, was about one and a half degrees Celsius higher than the land temperature in 1900. Mm -hmm. So on its own, you're like, well, you just said climate change was natural and that, you know, there are periods of heatings and coolings. But this change in temperature in this hundred year period was almost one degree Celsius higher than any comparable global temperature change. So you compare any other 100-year period and the surface temperature between those periods. And it's going to pale in comparison by nearly one degree Celsius. And we've also noticed that the frost-free season is much longer now. The number of record hot days is much higher. The number of hot nights is much higher. 
And every year so far in the 21st century has been in the top 20 hottest years on record. Mm. And if we look at these trends, this stark dramatic increase lines up perfectly with when we started producing carbon dioxide in the Industrial Revolution. So it's based on this understanding of how the greenhouse effect actually works, and especially how it works when you accelerate the, the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And based on the fact that we know that we're producing many, many more of these greenhouse gases now with our more industrial lifestyle. Mm. This is how we've been able to draw the conclusion. And I think um, a lot of people get stuck on the idea that it's a theory, that it's just climate change is just another theory. Mm. But all of science is a theory. I mean, gravity is a theory. Mm -hmm. But the more evidence we have, the more we confirm the theory again and again. And the only reason we can't say 100% it's a fact is because that's just not how science works. That wouldn't be responsible of scientists to be like, I know this for sure, no doubt in my mind. Because the, that portion of doubt is, you know, just how science works. Yeah, absolutely. That is a, such a good point to make that when someone says theory in science, it doesn't mean like something theoretical. It, it means that there is a piece of information that has been tested and trialed and over several different types of domains and through different people. And we've come to a conclusion that you can build upon, that you can see where it can improve and where it can evolve. And that's what I love about good science, at least, is that people say what the limitations are to our knowledge. And we talk about what we know and what we can agree on. And we talk about where we can continue to know and learn. And so I I, I definitely love that you pointed that out. I know that there's going to be somebody listening who will say, but it's only one degree warmer, like truly one degree warmer, you know, like it's, you know, what's the biggest difference between the number eight on my stove and the number seven on my stove, you know, not that much of a difference. Like if you said 10 degrees, that makes more sense. But what's the biggest deal about one degree hotter? Right. Yeah. One degree on its own doesn't seem like a lot, you know, every day the temperature fluctuates much more than one degree, and we would not even notice a one degree change during the day. But this is not just one degree change at one period of time in one location. This is an average temperature across the entire globe, which is usually much, much more stable over time. And it's important to note that nature is really fragile. Nature exists in this pretty delicate balance, even though it does have resiliency, like I mentioned. But overall, when it comes to huge factors like temperature, it's pretty sensitive to them. And what can really happen with this one degree difference is alarming how much everything can change. For example, I mentioned that the hotter things get, the more water evaporates. Well, that all ties into the water cycle. Of course, water evaporation is a natural part of the water cycle and has always happened. But with this acceleration of the evaporation, you get the entire cycle accelerating. And what that means is that we will see and are seeing an increase in the amount of droughts and the, and the severity of the droughts as well. And these, these droughts lead to increased severity of fires because we have these natural ecosystems that are basically kindling, waiting for a spark. Mm. And I think we can all agree that we've seen quite a lot of this happening now. This is not a future problem. This is definitely today's problem. Back in February, I was giving the Science as a Drag presentation and talking about the bushfires in Australia. Mm. And today it would be much more accurate to talk about the fires that are raging across almost half of North America right now. Yeah, definitely. And there's two things here that I'd like to expand on. And it's that one, droughts definitely affect fires and they also affect farmers. You know, what happens when there is a group of people in a part of the world that's already vulnerable and they get a drought and their economy collapses? I mean, really what happens? And then 
if the economy collapses and that state fails and we have refugees, say, for example, that's a humanitarian crisis. And if that happens over and over and over again, where are we going to put 100 million people in the world? Exactly. Not only with drought do you get famine, but you have water insecurity itself, which is a huge problem when it comes to daily functioning and basic human needs. And I think it's pretty apparent as well that along with this increased severity and frequency of fire, we're also seeing an increased severity and frequency of droughts and famine and food insecurity and refugees having to relocate, which is, it's kind of ironic because the people who deny climate science and the people who don't think it's a big deal are usually the same people who are really upset about refugees. And I'm like, you know, these things are inherently connected and we are going to, and this is going to happen more frequently. This, this is already happening more frequently and it's unfortunately, it's just going to keep happening more frequently. And we're seeing people as well who are going to have to relocate because of the severity of fires in their region. What are some myths that you have heard regarding climate change? Oh man, there are so many myths uh, regarding climate change. I mean, it's also like really sad that there are myths regarding climate change because when you were talking about it before, I just, I, I I really almost like want to hone in on the fact that what you were describing before regarding the earth receiving too much too soon of this accelerated mass of carbon dioxide and methane and, and whatnot, it's, that is the exact way that we describe trauma in our everyday life. We describe trauma as anything that is too much, too sudden, too quick, too soon, all of that. And it's like, we're doing this to the earth. You know, we're perpetually putting it through trauma and the earth is just trying to regulate itself the same way that our nervous systems just try to regulate themselves as much as possible. And the way that the earth regulates itself is by, you know, like, literally being on fire or by not producing water in certain ways. And that's so analogous to us trying to cope in our everyday lives when we can't stop having emotional outbursts or we can't seem to be emotionally attuned to ourselves or one another and having anxiety or depression. It's like, it's so, it's so, so, so similar. And so I I really wanted I wanted to touch on that. And I wanted to also say that it's just, it's sad that we have myths around that because it's like gaslighting, basically. It's like gaslighting 101, where someone just doesn't want to acknowledge and admit that what they have done is harmful or what a group of people has done is harmful. And they would prefer for you to be quiet about it rather than show up in whatever truth that there is there. Absolutely. And that's a great analogy. I mean, even with the just with the water cycle alone, you have these increased, obviously, this too much too soon. And then the results of that are trauma. And we see that in the in the Earth's response, with all these droughts, this increased evaporation, but what happens to the water? Well, all of it, there's just so much in the atmosphere that we get increased hurricanes and extreme storm events. So while part of the Earth is parched, and in famine or experiencing extreme fires. The other half is experiencing the threat and the devastation of hurricanes and these massive, massive precipitation events that we, I think, if you think back, like these have been increasing. Mm -hmm. These have been increasing a lot. And we all remember Hurricane Katrina. And that's just one of them. That's just one of the most recent Mm -hmm. events. Uh, But yeah, when, when it comes to myths, I mean, it's really frustrating. It's the ultimate gaslighting because I think I, I we can get into why later on, but mm-hmm. it's it personally it, it upsets me when I hear them for sure. I've had people who are like, "Oh, you studied you studied climate science, so is climate change real?" And that in such sincerity, and I really appreciate them asking me because I know that they are going in completely innocent, actually wanting to know, mm-hmm. not with any kind of combativeness. But it also makes me sad that they would even have to ask that if I had studied climate change science, that it wouldn't be a real thing. But yeah, I I hear a lot. um, One of the things that is super frustrating is when you hear that 
oh, well, carbon dioxide is plant food. This is just, this is good for the planet, Mm. not bad for the planet. And I'm like, well, I mean, it's true that plants do use carbon dioxide to grow. Mm -hmm. They need it. And when you increase the amount of carbon dioxide, you do notice that plants do a little better at first, but there are other things that they need to grow. And at the end of the day, those things will limit them a lot more than the carbon Mm -hmm. dioxide in the atmosphere. And and the effects of uh, the changes to the water cycle and to the, the increased heat, which actually increases plant mortality a lot, mm. far outweigh the benefits of having a little more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, or a lot more in this case. Another one I heard a lot recently, which this just, this upsets me to the core, is that um, the earth is healing, we are the virus. Stop. Are you serious? <laughs> you, you've heard that, have you not? I mean, I mean, I've heard some, I mean, I know those people who say stuff like that. What is that though? Wait. Oh, sorry. I just, what is, what are people saying? And like, how do they, I don't know. So this was like the motto of the early quarantine meme. A lot of people were like, you know, they were showing footage of either the better air quality in LA or Mm. animals coming back to city centers and going, the earth is healing. We are the virus. And I just wanted to be like, well, the first part of your sentence is wrong. And also the second part of your sentence is wrong because. Oh my God. Oh my God. The earth is not healing. I think it's going to take a lot more than us isolating for a couple months or even a year for the earth to heal. Mm -hmm. And while we're doing this, I mean, we're using so many more disposable masks and disposable gloves Mm -hmm. and we're shipping a lot more as well. So even though we're not using our cars, we're still using greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think that the earth is healing because of the coronavirus. Um, (laughs) And we're putting up plastic like barriers everywhere. Like that amount of plastic that's being produced is, I can't comprehend it. Like I look around and it's everything everywhere is just filled with it. Yeah. And so you're right. Like there is just going to be an insurmountable portion of garbage that's left. Right. And like people might not connect the garbage with climate change, but at the end of the day, the earth is a very interconnected system and these things all do affect each other. The, for example, like this garbage island that is just growing and growing in the ocean, mm-hmm. it blocks out all the light from the sun. So plants can't actually grow in this garbage island at all or around it. There's absolutely no life there. And the ocean is one of the top producers of oxygen and one of the top sinks of carbon dioxide, mostly because of the algae that lives there. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is definitely connected. Can you tell people what garbage island is? Garbage Island is this amalgamation of mostly plastic garbage that I'm not exactly sure where it is on the planet, but it's definitely in an ocean. It has um, amalgamated a bunch of neighboring garbage. And you might think, I don't throw my garbage in the ocean, so it's fine. Mm -hmm. But the garbage does end up in the ocean eventually. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some runoff, these landfills that we put our garbage in are not completely sealed off to the world and eventually the the garbage makes its way into streams Mm -hmm. and as all water does it all just kind of ends up in the ocean and a large island of it has a mast now that is basically a giant dead zone because absolutely nothing can live there oh brutal yeah i believe that there's about two now and it's a huge patch off of the the California coast and then a huge one closer to Australia, I believe. And I mean, that is just like, what in the fuck are we doing? And how much more do we have to see in order to change? That's yeah, that's the question. And I think, I think a lot of people don't see or choose not to. So that's part of it. But we can totally, we can get into that later. Um, I just want to break down the second part of this. The earth is healing and we are the virus. Mm-hmm, please. 
because I think we've already established the earth wasn't healing. But I also want to to like confirm that we aren't the virus. First of all, even if we were, I don't think that would be very helpful. I don't think that mindset would really encourage anyone to help out the planet. But I think history has proven that it's not humans that are the virus. It's the way that we are currently living our life and the culture that we currently have, which, you know, is from colonization and capitalism that comes with that. The way that has spread over the planet has really, that's the real virus, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. because we've seen that indigenous communities have lived in harmony and in balance with nature and with like a lot of understanding and respect for nature Mm -hmm. for like since time immemorial. So saying that humans are the virus really erases that history and the ability of humans to do better, which is absolutely possible. That is an excellent point. I'm going to say that to you multiple times throughout our conversation, but you do keep making them that when we say, when we lump in all humans like that, we're forgetting that it wasn't indigenous people. It wasn't black people that created the industrial revolution. I mean, when I say that, I'm being very mindful to the fact that they were the backs of the industrial revolution being launched. I mean that they did not want that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And that through tracing back to indigenous cultures, it's like you can see that there was no way in hell that they were on a trajectory of, you know, taking more than what the land could provide ever at all, at all. And so that's a really, really, really apt point saying that because I do think that it's a lot of white people who will be saying that it's a lot of rich people who will be saying that saying that or the virus and stuff it's a lot of people with privilege and for anyone who is listening who may have said that or who knows someone who said that or who may have agreed with it I hope that you know listening to this can influence a little bit more of a thoughtfulness next time that we think about these types of things and that growth is definitely accepted here. And I'm all for that. You know, we make mistakes and whatnot. I'm curious what your thoughts are, because as you're saying this, you know, something that popped into my head is the fact that a while ago, I think like a few years ago, I heard that a hundred companies are responsible for something like 70% of global emissions. And it's hard as an individual, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to be plant-based. I'm trying to recycle, which doesn't do too much, but I'm trying. I'm trying to just buy less plastic in general. And I, well, I'm trying to reconcile that with my rage for the fact that I'm not part of the 100 companies. What do you think about that? And what are your thoughts with, you know, personal responsibility versus this responsibility that these mega corporations have? That's a really great point. It's absolutely valid. I think a lot of the reasons that it's really tough for people to care about climate change stems from that, the fact that it has been sold to us as a green solution, you know, that this green marketing that if we buy this fancy new type of soap, you know, we're saving the climate. In reality, I think a lot of us figured out that we were just kind of being brainwashed into buying more stuff Mm -hmm. and our individual actions at the end of the day had very little consequences on the planet when these corporations really, they're the ones with the power to make real change. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely sympathize and I feel those feelings of feeling powerless and feeling like, your small, the small things you do in your life to make a difference aren't really having an effect at all. And I think like those small things, you know, climate anxiety is super real. So if that makes you feel better, if it makes you feel like you're doing something when you choose to bike instead of take your car, Mm -hmm. or you even you carpool instead of just taking a car on your own. Yeah, that is a small way that you're making a difference. And I think you have the right to feel good about yourself. Definitely don't feel better than anyone else. Like try not to Mm -hmm. make anyone who's not doing those things feel worse about themselves, but that's totally valid too. But when it comes to 
what we can do as individuals. I, I think what is powerful, even though we may not be the 1% is we do have voices and we have the ability to, when we see misinformation, we have the ability to correct it and engage in that conversation. Mm -hmm. We have the ability to urge policymakers and contact our local representatives and tell them that, you know, we think that there should be at least a significant decrease in the amount of greenhouse gases we produce, and there should be protections and restorations for natural land. And I think even more importantly, as individuals, and especially as settlers in I mean, in in this case, you and I are in North America, we're settlers in this country. It's really important that we stand behind and follow the lead of Indigenous land and water defenders because these Indigenous nations are always at the front lines. Mm. They're always at the front lines. And climate science in the colonial sense has been around since the 1970s. Indigenous climate science, Indigenous traditional knowledge, which is science, has been around since time immemorial. We are just catching up. We are playing catch up. Mm. And the best thing we can really do is support land and water defenders. Mm. That's beautiful. There is a way to go about it systemically. And it's by, you know, voting and writing and being loud and putting pressure and trying to choose plant-based and trying to consume less plastic and and I have and taxing the rich, like straight up, you know, what absolutely what the fuck is Jeff Bezos gonna do with a trillion dollars if he's not gonna save the planet that he's on? Like I don't what the hell are we doing? If we get so if we get far, you know, if if you and I are like fifty or six years old and nothing has been done and like the planet's on fire and we're like cheersing to each other in the apocalypse and we're like, yep, we called it. Um, we're going to be the species that just died of misplaced values. Like we truly value the economy and bank accounts and like these superficial numbers that don't mean anything about the individual. We will value that over the rainforest and our oceans and our fish and our land and our crops and everything that makes life literally worth living. And if a whale or a tree is always in in our current system, always worth dead more than alive, then we won't get anywhere. Then it doesn't matter how much natural soap you buy. It just doesn't. If that is still the system that we're running on. It just, it won't matter. And I'm curious what you think of the fact that people are going to be hearing this and they are going to be overwhelmed. You know, they're going to, Mm -hmm. they're going to feel like shit. Like I can't, I can't really like do anything about it. Do you, and I know we, we kind of talked about this at the beginning of the podcast, but do you ever have those feelings and how do you work through them? Like, how do you work through your climate anxiety? Absolutely, Kenzie. I <laughs> I am an anxiety riddled individual. You know, I'm a millennial. So I, I sympathize <laughs> completely. I mean, I've also had struggles with my own mental health throughout my life. And it's a pretty similar method that I would employ. I think mindfulness and self-care, radical acceptance, and like you mentioned a little bit, just sitting with it and understanding that these harsh facts are are true and you don't have to think about them 100% of the time. Mm. I'm actually, one of my favorite mental health coping strategies is distraction. Mm. And I know <laughs> a lot of people knock it, but there's nothing like reality TV to really get your mind off a burning planet. <laughs> so I I think yeah, I I have absolutely 100% sympathy for all of the people who are listening now feeling overwhelmed, feeling hopeless, and all the people who will ever feel overwhelmed and hopeless about this. And yes, absolutely take care of your mental health, but I don't think that's a reason to check out. Mm. It's kind of like um, allyship as the verb that it is. 
you may feel overwhelmed and you may be racked with guilt and shame as we are about our actions towards the planet. But it's something that you have to process and you have to feel. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. you have to feel that feeling and go, okay, okay. So now what, how am I going to channel this? How am I going to channel the rage that I have towards these one percenters Mm -hmm. who this Jeff Bezos, who every day decides that this today's the day he's not going to solve climate change and then channel that towards taking action Mm -hmm. and doing these, these action items. Um, whether that's something small, like opening your purse and supporting the legal funds of land and water defenders, or whether that's something a little bigger, like showing up at the front lines of these protests and putting your settler body in front of mm. indigenous bodies as protection. These are, I, I think when it comes to like the steps, the type of allyship you take, it's, it's totally something that can accommodate your needs. I'm a disabled person and there are times when I can't go to the front lines mm-hmm. and there are always small ways like writing emails that you can show your support mm. that don't have to necessarily mean going outside of your abilities. I really appreciate that you are bringing back to our Indigenous and Native peoples and that we need to be supporting them and making sure that we're amplifying them and keeping their 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 bodies safe and their messages safe. And there's a book that I recently read that I don't even want to talk too much about it because I will literally not stop talking about it. And it's Braiding Sweetgrass by Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I mean, every single part of that book literally changed my life. And one of the parts of it that's just ringing true for me right now in this is Indigenous language has rarely has any eyes in it in the sense of like, I am Kenzie. That over there is a body of water. Like there are rare, and I'm not going to, I'm I'm going to butcher this because I'm not an English major whatsoever, but things are rarely separate in Indigenous language. So when someone is referring to a lake, it is that being of water. That is how, you know, some lakes are, or that's how some bodies of water are described. And there's much more we language, you know, we, the people, we, the forest, the forest that feels, you know, it's those types of phrases that are just embedded in indigenous culture and in indigenous language and language shapes your brain and it shapes your heart and it shapes your DNA. And so when you're saying that there are land protectors and water bearers, it is so important to really let that sit with us because they have been on this shit since day fucking one, that the climate is changing, that the land is not the same, that the water is not the same, and they know it. And they feel most strongly about it because that is their family, that is their community. And what we have taken for granted and as commodities and what we've commodified is their family and their friends and their community. And we've done that over and over again with land and with animals and the planet. And um, it's just, it's ringing. It's all ringing true for me right now, friend. It's all ringing true for me. I think it really just goes to show like how sick our culture really is. Like this culture that's so built on white supremacy and individualism and capitalism and all these values that you mentioned before, like at the end of the day, does it really matter how much money you Mm -hmm. have if the land can't even bear you crops? Mm. That, that deep rooted sickness is really, that's what has to change. And that's why it's so scary. It's, that's a big thing to change. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, we're wrap, we're going to wrap up soon, but I mean, this conversation could go on because we could even make the conversation more intersectional by saying, well, how does climate change affect race? Just here here in North America. And it's like, oh, well, no problem, friends, because we have a whole chat. We could go into a whole chapter on that. We could go into vulnerable neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and how they're more likely to be next to, you know, garbage dumps. We could talk about the fact that 
indigenous people have, you know, water warnings and that they don't have access to clean. I mean, like, and this is, you know, supposed to be a quote unquote developed nation. Developed for who though? Like what, you know, how is that? Mm -hmm. So anyways, um, climate change affects everybody and it affects some people more so than others. And there's no getting around it. And just because, you know, at the day-to-day weather level, we don't feel the, you know, one degree warmer, it is happening. And the same thing that we're doing in allyship with sitting with our feelings and recognizing where we've done wrong and honoring that, we have to do that with climate. And the same way that we are standing up for certain bodies, we need to be doing that for the planet too. Because it is technically, it's a celestial body. Like that's like, that's like a term, you know, it's a body too. And so I really appreciate you coming here today and spending time with us and talking about something that you're really passionate about. And I know that I learned so much and I hope that everybody listening did. Where can everybody find you online? So you can find my drag Instagram. Um, It's big drag Mike, like I'm a big drag. And also my drag name is Big Mike. Yes. And we will put that in the show notes. That's pretty much it. Perfect. Thank you so much, Michael. I really, really, really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Kenzie. This was really great. And the listeners obviously don't know, but while you were speaking, I was just nodding vigorously and snapping my fingers non-soundily. <laughs> Likewise, it's such it's 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 so nice to be able to have a conversation where we're just like, you know, buzzing and agreeing and, you know, riffing off of one another. This has been really lovely. Absolutely agreed. All right, friends, you made it to the end of the episode. You know what to do now. Head over to our Instagram account, Conversations with Kenzie, and let us know what you loved about the episode. Or let us know what you didn't love. What questions did we miss? What questions could we have asked differently? Let us know there. As always, stay curious, keep asking questions, and keep making conversations in your everyday life. Until next time.